In the mid-19th century in Europe, they were seeing a growth of reductive scientific rationalism that caused many people to doubt the Christian faith. This pseudo-rationalism, or scientism as it might be called, suggests that only that which can be scientifically demonstrated has any truth value. Now, it should be obvious to anyone that this kind of claim, rather than advancing the cause of reason and science, actually hinders it, because only a relatively small range of human concerns can be dealt with as matters of demonstrative evidence. To explore many other things, such as morality, or art, or literature, or history, or politics, requires a set of metaphysical assumptions about the nature of man and the nature of the world that are not derivable from scientific observation. That is why in our modern times, people simultaneously invoke the mantle of reason and science while acting in the most absurd and irrational of ways. Look at the last 200 years in which our world has increasingly become secular and non-Christian. Can anyone with a straight face claim that we are seeing a public culture imbued with increasing rationality? Just flip through the channels on television. Does it seem that we are moving towards a more enlightened way of living? Against this backdrop, this fetishizing of science and reason, Pope Pius IX called together the bishops of the world to Rome for what we now call the First Vatican Council in 1869. The Pope asked the bishops to explain the relationship between God, reason, revelation, and faith. As well, it's important to recognize that there are some, just as there are some in the secular world who would deny any role to faith or revelation, there are some Christian believers, sometimes called pietists, who believe that knowledge of God and faith comes entirely outside of reason. Well, the fathers of the First Vatican Council rejected both approaches. Instead, following the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, they affirmed that reason and faith complement each other by cooperatively revealing truth to men, including knowledge of the divine truths. Thus, in the conciliar document Dei Filius, the Church teaches, Holy Mother Church holds and teaches that God, the beginning and end of all things, may be certainly known by the light of natural reason, by means of created things. And here they quote Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Now, the church says that we can know that God exists through observation of the world and through our natural reason. It does not, however, endorse any particular philosophical argument for the existence of God, such as those put forth by Aquinas or others. Just like it does not pin any article of faith on a reading of any particular scriptural passage. Rather, the church embraces the truth and leaves it to theologians and philosophers to grapple with how 
a particular truth is justified by reason or by revelation. One of the reasons that the church does this is because it wants to avoid implying that there is a complete dichotomy between faith and reason. There are not, strictly speaking, some truths that are only known by faith and some that are only known by reason. For example, some, in trying to explain the relationship of faith and reason, have suggested the image of a mountain. Climbing up one side is likened to the use of reason, the arduous struggle to reach the summit where one can finally know by reason that there is a God and that he is the creator of all things. Then one descends the other side of the mountain by faith, coming to know the revealed truths such as the Trinity and the Incarnation that are inaccessible to pure reason. But this image, although it is valuable in some respects, shortchanges the interconnection between faith and reason. Rather, the image we might invoke is that of two horses pulling the same cart. The cart is kept moving forward in a straight line by the equal tension produced by the horse on the right and the horse on the left. Seen in this way, the dichotomy between faith and reason is lessened. Yes, we can know by the light of reason alone that God exists, but it is by a grace that God puts in our hearts that we use our reason to seek out the ultimate meaning of existence. And yes, it is because of the deposit of faith that man can know such sublime mysteries as the Trinity or the Incarnation. But it's only because this revelation is understood and contextualized by the power of our reason that we can have a living and dynamic faith. So instead of science and faith, reason and revelation, perhaps we should speak of everything as revelation. Instead, we could say that there is first revelation and second revelation. First revelation is God's very act of creating. And it reveals to us in the world by its own beauty and the mystery that it exhibits the hand of the creator himself. And then there is second revelation, the deposit of faith contained in scripture and in tradition that instructs us in the creator's specific plan for us. First revelation makes second revelation credible. And second revelation makes first revelation meaningful. Pope Benedict often talked about the enormous significance of the incorporation of Greek philosophy into the life of the church in the early centuries after Christ. He called it providential, this meeting of Jerusalem and Athens. Because it was through the structure and rigor of philosophy that the gospel received genuine structure and rigor, and, it, and from this genuine theology was born, faith-seeking understanding, a theology that equipped Christianity to survive many centuries of challenges and conflicts and enormous social changes. All of this bears on the story of the wise men from the gospel today. The Magi were astronomers, the scientific minds of their time. But there was enough room in their scientific outlook that when they saw something in the heavens, they were immediately drawn to it. 
recognizing that it was not just some astrological anomaly. It was a sign from God. They saw and responded to its divine significance. Notice again that in following the star, that only got them as far as Israel, not to Jesus himself. Israel was the guardian of God's revelation, the people through whom the Messiah was promised to come who would save all of the nations on earth. Thus, it was only by consulting the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes, that the Magi could finally pinpoint that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And when the Magi find Jesus, they don't seek to analyze him or dissect him or put him through some kind of scientific experiment. Instead, they were, quite simply, overjoyed. They gave the infant Jesus gifts, just as we do with people whom we love, as a way of establishing and strengthening a personal relationship. They did him homage, just as Mary and Joseph did. Their faith and their reason worked in tandem. By their reason, they saw the star. But by the promptings of faith, they sought out what the star signified. In doing so, they submitted themselves to the revelation of God entrusted to the Jews. Because of this, they could finally arrive in Bethlehem, prostrating themselves before the Son of God, born in a manger. This is why the prophet Simeon would say of Christ that he is God's light to the nations and the glory of his people Israel. He would draw all things to himself, Jew and Gentile, those of reason and those of faith, those from the east and those from the west. It's why Isaiah would say to Israel, nations shall walk by your light. As St. Paul would say in the second reading, the mystery of revelation was made known to him, a Jew, but only so that the Gentiles themselves could also become co-heirs to Christ. Only a Jew would be in a position to make the revelation of Christ credible to a non-Jew. Thus, God chose them as the sanctuaries of his revelation. In the new covenant, God continues to guard his revelation, not in the people of Israel, but in the church of Christ. That is why our Holy Father, Pope Francis, recently said in a homily, that wanting to live with Jesus but without the church, following Jesus outside of the church, loving Jesus outside of the church is an absurd dichotomy. Because only the church can keep in tension this exquisite symphony of faith and reason. Left on our own, we invariably lose the equilibrium. God, in his wisdom, gives us Holy Mother Church as a guiding hand and as a gentle protector.